Hi, I'm Barnaby Cook and welcome to The Exit Plan, a podcast for business owners that are interested in learning more about how to sell their business. Each episode, I interview someone who's bought or sold a business, either a creative agency or a production company. The conversation gets under the skin of why they wanted to sell or were looking to acquire, how the deal was structured, how they agreed upon evaluation, and what lessons they learned along the way. Here we go. For today's episode, I caught up with Gus Cahoon, formerly of Jacaranda. Gus is a man with a hard-to-pronounce surname, so I hope I've done it justice there. I was on the way down to Cornwall with my family for a couple of days break, so we agreed to stop off on the way in the lovely surroundings of Babington House, which is a short drive from where Gus now lives in Somerset. It was one of those beautiful summer days. My wife and daughter went for a swim and Babington House had very kindly let us set up in their cinema screening room, which seemed to be an appropriate location for this chat, given the topic of our conversation. I first met Gus and his business partner, Katie, about 10 years ago when they were looking to sell their business and instantly got on with them. I thought they were both very charismatic and both lovely people. Jacaranda was a very well-known corporate video production company in London. They'd done a lot of work for The Body Shop and subsequently picked up Rio Tinto as a client, which they produced videos for for, for a number of years before they sold their business in 2014. Gus and I had a wide-ranging conversation about his business, how the deal came about, and what he did afterwards. Spoiler alert, he trained to become a helicopter pilot. I think a good place to start would be if you can just give us a bit of an overview of where Jacaranda was in the sort of lead up to the sale. Actually, a bit of a history. Like, how did you how did you even set the company up? And well, okay, I, <laughs> how long I'll, have we got? I'll give you how long have we got. I'll give you the <laughs> try and keep it fairly brief. I studied film and TV as part of my drama and English course at Bristol. Yeah. And while I was there, there's a lady in the year above me called Katie Eyre, who turned out to be my next-door neighbour. Um, when she graduated, she went to London and got a job as a, as a PA in a small production company. And when I left a year later, I took over her job. And we basically kept in touch during the course of our various freelance jobs I then set up a small business, as did she, and then I acquired the body shop as a client for my yes. uh, production company at the time, um, got to know Anita Roddick well and got on very well with her and suggested to her that really she needed to set up her own production company with Katie and I. So we did. Body shop were had the foresight to invest in our new business, which was fantastic. And they were amazing support to us when we when yeah. we set up the business. Our, my, my intention was to do something which at the time was really, well, not revolutionary, but, but was unheard of, which was to have a production company that also had its own editing equipment. Right. Back in the day, it was, you know, Betacam editing, so, so linear editing. So we did that with Body Shop's help. To give some perspective on that, an edit suite cost us 350,000 quid. Right. Um, which which did considerably less than a subscription to Premiere does now, yes. obviously. Yeah. Um, when, when was this? What, what, what year? Well, it would have been kind that? of like 80, the late 80s. Late 80s, yeah. So like 88, 89, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but by making that investment, we obviously kept those costs in house. Yeah. Because again, to relate that to what it would cost to go out to an edit suite, what one had to do in those days, you would be paying a hundred and something quid an hour yeah. to go to 
a conventional facilities edit suite in Soho. In Soho, yeah, yeah and and quite possibly considerably more than that. Yeah. So, so by keeping those costs in house, we we were able to increase our margins considerably. How did you fund that initial purchase of that? It was for investment from from Body Shop initially that helped us with that. So your client actually invested. In yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were majority owners of the business. So, oh, they, so owned, they had an equity stake. Absolutely, yeah, they right. owned eighty percent of the business initially. I see. Um, and Katie and I had twenty percent. Um, but we did it on the basis that we, you know, our intention was very clearly to build a an independent production company yeah. that would seek. Other, you know, we weren't an in-house production company for Body Shop, so Body Shop was a client. Yeah. Um, but but the intention was always to build a, a production company that that had as many clients as possible, and that in due course we would buy out their stake, which in, indeed we did. And how did you how did you do that? When did how and when? So so we 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 built up our our client base. I mean, we were, we were lucky enough to to win the the IVCA. Grand Prix, which was the kind of at the time that you know was the award to win kind of thing. It's still still is, I think. Is it right? Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's called Evcom now. Okay, well, right. Well, so so we won the Grand Prix in our first year of trading, which was for for a, a project we did for for, for Body Shop, um, which was obviously a, a huge boost to us commercially and 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 helped us win other clients. Um, and and we you know we built the business on that basis and and then we built we bought out the body shop share i think about 6 years later 6 or 7 years later so what happened after you bought them out what other clients did you have and how did you build well, the we business well we were we were lucky enough really to always have one big client more through luck than judgment you know we, as we lost one big client we seemed to pick up another one so we tended to have you know one one big client and then I suppose you know ten or fifteen smaller ones at any given time, and and they range from you know British Airways. We used to do all their in-flight safety films, for example, to Kingfisher Group uh, at one yeah. point. So we, we, who were big, and then Rio Tinto. So then, how many sort of employees did you have? Kind of how did you go about hiring? And what was the split of the roles between you and Katie? So in terms of employees, I think I think at our largest we had about twenty-two. Um, and I think we both felt, you know, that just sort of grew organically, really, um, because by that time we had, you know, three edit suites in house. Again, we kind of followed that process of always having our own post production facilities in house. In in terms of the split of our roles, I, I think notionally she was managing director and I was creative director, um, which was really a title I don't think I I li- ever lived up to particularly. But um, Katie was always much better at the, at the admin and at you know hiring people and firing people, frankly, and. Yeah. and 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 I think perhaps I don't know my my role was more the creative side of writing things and you know that that's what I've always enjoyed doing more is the writing. And how did the sort of revenue start out and how did it grow? Did it sort of go up and down or did you sort of see steady growth over the years? I guess we saw steady growth until the recession. It grew well initially the body shop account and then latterly you know as I say we we sort of always had one big client and and they were you know a million plus. Right. And then the rest of the clients sort of made up another one to two million together, kind of thing. So we grew it. To, I think our turnover was at best about knocking on for three million. Okay, that's great. Yeah. Um, and then, so in the kind of period leading up to a sale, what did the business look like, and what was it that kind of made you decide that you we got old? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, I think we. Well, we we talked about selling the business after about 10 years 
And I think in retrospect, I don't know if Katie would agree with me, but I think in retrospect, we probably should have sold it earlier. It became a very comfortable lifestyle business for us. We each had four children. Um, and, you know, sort of only half jokingly, Jacaranda paid for the fact that we each had four children. So, you know, that was eight children between us, which was obviously, you know, an expensive process. So it sort of rather by accident became a, a, a lifestyle business. And I think we should probably have thought about selling it earlier and we might have, that might have been a good thing. But I think we got to a point where a number of things coincided. You know, the lease was coming up on our building. Um, so we were going to have to move. We were turning over less than we had before. We, you know, we, we'd reduced the staff numbers post-recession. Um, and I think we just both felt that it was time to move on and do something else. You know? Can you give me an idea of what the, the revenue was, employee count, kind of in the year leading up to the to the sale? Well, I think, yes. I mean, I think at that point we had probably about eight staff, something like that. So we were, you know, smaller. And I think the revenue was probably around the two million, two and a half million, something like that. Two, two million. And did you have a kind of management structure in place or kind of who were the who were the sort of, you know, the next level down from, from you and Katie? Yeah, I mean, that was something we... we we, we always talked about and frankly struggled with over the years. So we employed, we mistakenly employed probably five or six senior people, whether they were sort of in a production management role or in a sales role. And it was, it never worked. Um, and, and, and that's probably our fault, you know, because we were too hands on and too probably too difficult to work with uh, so it was always a disaster in some respect it, it never never really worked so it was very much our thing and I think that was also probably part of it being a lifestyle business rather than something we'd you know consciously set out to build into something saleable we hadn't ever done that you know we'd just run it because that's what we did and it you know during the course of the 90s you know it provided us with with an extremely comfortable lifestyle which was great so when we started to think about selling it and, and we started talking to advisors about it, one of the key things they said was, well, if you guys aren't here, who the hell is running it kind of thing. So we were lucky enough to have a really great senior producer, um, Vicky, who came with us and a, and a great um, uh, sort of head of, of tech um, of the post-production side. And, and they were they were key to, to it. And obviously they came with the business and, and, and went on to continue to run it and actually one of them is still running it even right. to this day so how did that process go you sort of said you know you and Casey said okay lease is coming up we're getting a bit older we, we're thinking about selling the business what kind of happened then you said you spoke to some advisors or what was the first step we had a great accountant um, and I had a particular friend actually who had sold his business extremely successfully and he advised me and, and ultimately put me in touch with corporate finances who basically their, their business is selling businesses and we talked to a number of different people about how we should sell the business and I think I think we, we sort of did a beauty parade of four or five different potential advisors and all of them bar the one we eventually used basically had a template which was we'll put together this massive proposal with you know of that will go on for 100 pages and we'll send it to a 1,000 people and, you know, no doubt the right person will hear it. Rockworth, who we used in the end, had exactly the opposite approach and they put together, we put together a proposal with them which I think 
if it wasn't one A4, it was no more than two suits of A4 with almost no information in it at all. And they sent it to, I think, 10 people uh, from whom we had three serious expressions of interest. Okay, great. So you found Rockworth, you liked their approach. Can you remember roughly what their model was, what they charged? I don't remember the figures, but it was a model which involved a retainer, which was relatively modest, Mm -hmm. and then a percentage of whatever we eventually sold for, which was, you know, not insubstantial, but was extremely worthwhile. Okay. All right. So you had sort of went out to about 10 people that had sort of three serious expressions of interest. Mm. What, what did, I mean, without sort of naming names or what did those look like? And how well, did those meetings go? One was a facilities company who were interested in getting into the, the production side of the business. Another, what I can't quite remember who the, who the third one was, but it didn't ever go anywhere. And then the one that did go somewhere and, and, and to whom we ultimately sold was completely unexpected it was a printing company. And I think that actually is exactly why the Rockworth approach worked, because they weren't sending our details out to the people we would have sent them to. Mm. They were sending them to, you know, they, they they found us a buyer who we would never have expected would be interested in us. So what what was their interest? I mean, well, printing company, you know? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Uh, I what mean, kind of printing? Like what? Well, I think this is a really important point and hopefully might be useful to other people, but... They were, and still are, a large PLC whose main business was in printing checkbooks and bank statements. So two things that, whilst extremely lucrative, were apparently in rapid decline. Nobody uses checkbooks. Nobody has printed bank statements. And they also did sort of direct mail. And they had, at board level, decided that it was very much in their interests to be seen to be, because they wanted to sell their business ultimately up to, you know, whatever. But they wanted to become a digital communications business for obvious reasons. Yeah. Or actually, more accurately, they wanted to be seen to be a digital communications business. And they employed someone to basically, and they, you know, gave him a budget to go out and buy small businesses that would enable them to do that. Uh, We would never have expected an approach from such a company. And they were the ones who eventually bought us. Okay. So how did that process go? Kind of what meetings did you have and what negotiations and, you know, how did, how did, it, how did it all sort of pan out? Well, obviously, we had to do quite a lot of work with the accountants to come up with, you know, the figures they needed and so on and so forth. We did a lot of work in terms of putting together presentations for them. You know, what was interesting to them was our range of clients, and the range of services that we offered, which were obviously completely different to what they offered. And they were, at the same time, buying three or four other businesses, including an ad agency, a uh, graphics design agency. You know, So they were basically trying to put together this, this thing which would show them to be some sort of cutting-edge media communications business. So they were interested in our clients. They were interested, obviously, in the, in the figures, and we didn't have that many meetings with them, but we, we did have to spend a lot of time with the accountants, with the corporate finance people, and with inevitably lawyers, mm-hmm. um, which was always exciting. Yes. Yeah, and they were all fantastic, actually, I have to say. They were they were extremely good because it did involve a lot of late nights and three-in-the-morning phone calls. I mean, it was pretty full-on. And 
big question here, but and you don't have to go into the figures, but how did you go about valuing the business? Yeah. So the way people would value the business, and I think, you know, ultimately our buyers valued the business was as a multiple of EBITDA, you know, whatever you want to take it as. Um, and, and, and that was certainly a key consideration from their point of view. But I think the other way to look at the value is not what the value is in your P&L or your balance sheet, but it's the, the value that you're going to add to their business. And certainly that was that was our argument and would always be. But that was, on paper at least, considerable mm. because we were bringing them a set of skills and a set of clients that they could then sell their other services to that they could not otherwise acquire. So I think the argument is always to try and bias the value to that right. respect. Yeah. You know, so what's the value we're bringing to you? It's very interesting to me because I think a lot of business owners will go on Google and sort of say, how do you value a business? And the thing that pops up sort of says, a business sells for six to eight times multiple. And I think in in reality, when it comes to small owner-managed businesses, it's it's actually really quite hard to achieve a multiple like that, yeah, yes, yeah, so I, I think I think that's true. But on the other hand, and I, you know, and I, I know I said this already, but I would really emphasise it that it's it's not that exact a science. Mm. You know, it's really not a question of just you know if you're actively trying to sell it, it's not just accepting that it's some sort of notional multiple of of your EBITDA. It's really, and this again is where our advisors were incredibly helpful. Is it's arguing quite legitimately that the value of your business is not just about your turnover. Mm. It's about the the relatively intangible assets that you're bringing to them. What value do you put on the fact that we're going to bring you Barclays as a client? Well, let's discuss that. Let's discuss what that really could mean to your business. I mean, and, you know, and we'll argue about it and they'll say it's worth nothing and we'll say it's worth millions, you know. But but actually, there's, there's, a, there's a legitimate discussion to be had about that, which is much more interesting than the notional multiple of turnover. Yeah, so I guess it's just it's finding that strategic fit where someone's going to look at your business and see and, and see the value beyond. Yeah, and I think and, I think it, you know obviously it depends very much on the nature of the acquirer. If our acquirer had been simply another production company, then probably a multiple of turnover would have been the right way to to think about it because they already know the business, they have the skills, and so on and so forth. But if you're selling to somebody, and ideally you are somebody who's not in the same business as you, then you're offering them something that it would cost them, arguably an amount of money to acquire that is probably greater than the multiple of six times your EBITDA. Yeah. You know, you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it. You sort of move up the value chain, don't you? And especially for selling to a publicly traded company, they're very aware of their multiple because it's it's reflected in their share price every day. So, you know, if they can buy a company at four times, but they're trading at eight times, that's that's instantly a good deal for them. Yes, 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 that's that's absolutely right. And I think back in the day, we were quite bad at thinking about what the value of our company was. You know where where the value actually lay. Mm. You know because I'm sure the production industry has changed since then. But we we charged for the wrong things. You know <laughs> traditionally. So you know creative businesses. You know certainly in our case, we weren't charging for the really properly for the things that we did. Mm. Um, and I, I guess that's probably changed somewhat. 
think there's still an element of you know not not charging enough for creative and yeah 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 exactly but yeah. but you know when you're when you're being acquired by a business that isn't creative you have to really think about what it is that you're as I say where your value lies how long did it all take from from engaging Rockworth to closing the deal selling the business probably three or four months that was quite quick. It was pretty quick. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty quick because they they had a deadline to hit because they wanted to make an announcement about the companies that they had they had acquired by by a specific deadline. I forget why, but you know it meant that our, our the purchase of, of Jacaranda and and a couple of other companies they wanted to announce all together to the city. Okay. Uh, which which they did. It was in time for their their annual report or whatever. Okay, okay. So all right. And what was the kind of structure of the deal? Like how much in percentage terms, how much money was up front, how much was based on an earnout, and how did they put the whole thing together? It was somewhat more than fifty percent in cash up front and then an earnout over two years. Okay. And was that tied to performance of the business? It was or? tied to performance of the business, yes. Tied to performance of our business within their business and tied to the performance of their business overall. So okay. there was sort of a two level structure to that, which became significant actually because um, because we were frankly slightly cynical about whether or not we were ever going to see the second half of that deal. And all of our advisors advised us of that. You know, basically, and I'm sure this, they say this to everyone, whatever you get up front, just imagine that whatever you get up front is all you're ever going to get. Because either either something's going to go wrong, you're going to hate them, they're going to hate you. Just presuppose that you're never going to get anything else. So we kind of did the deal on that basis, and we were relatively happy with that. And so part of the deal was that we acquired shares in their business in lieu of full payment. We had I can't remember exactly what the time frame was, but we were able to be released from our obligations after, I think it was 18 months, and sell our shares in their business at that point. I believed that that was the best we were ever going to get. So I jumped ship at that point, largely because exactly as predicted, having to work for a big company, I found incredibly hard. Having really never worked for anyone else, to be honest, I found it very challenging, shall we say, and Mm. and I think I was terrible at it. So I jumped ship as soon as I could and cashed my shares in. Katie, wisely, because she was always smarter than me, stayed in for a bit longer and during the time that she stayed in they were able to sell their business to another much larger business in america and therefore she benefited from the uplift in their share value at that point so you know there's a lesson there so it was a publicly traded company yeah so you had some equity in that so it was very easy for you to sell yes exactly when you wanted to exactly yeah yeah and did you hit your the other targets that they'd that they'd set. Yes, yes, we did. So one of our largest clients at that point was Barclays, um, and we had a sort of annual contract with them in effect, and we were able to bring that with us and and continue. And that that was a huge help to us while we were, you know, in that first eighteen months or so of, of trading with it as part of their bigger business. Did um did you lose any clients or no, staff? No, I don't think so. No, we lost some staff. Did you? Yeah, but at what point? I think at the point of of acquisition you know because we didn't need as many so we you know we didn't do the sort of support staff in terms of receptionist for example i know, see we didn't need so that wasn't necessarily people leaving because you were acquired it was more 
right sizing the business. Is yeah, exactly. So we did we didn't need our own bookkeeper. You know that right. kind of obvious thing. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's what I was going to ask: was what kind of functions were they able to take off? off so, so a lot of the administrative functions in terms of bookkeeping and so on and so forth, but all of which was obviously a nightmare because they had different systems to us, and you know. And no, you can't. You can't have a Mac. We use PCs. You know, and all that kind of inevitable horror. Oh dear! What did you did you win that battle? Yeah, I refused to have a PC. Okay. Yeah, yeah, much to the irritation of everyone, I think. Which was again why I was not a good employee. Right, right. Okay. <laughs> so after eighteen months, you cash your shares in jump ship and then left the business entirely. Left the business entirely. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, how did that feel? <laughs> Kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very, very weird after 27 years of running it. But it was time for us both, you know, for me in particular, to get out of it. I moved moved down here to Somerset. I'd been commuting to London on a, on a more or less daily basis for too many years. And so, yeah, it was great. It was great to get out with enough money to not to have to go and do something else straight away. But I did continue, you know, I had a great relationship with a consultancy actually based in Geneva who... I carried on working for on a freelance basis and, and still do, mainly writing on various projects for them. I don't think I could ever stop working altogether. No. Coming back to the sale itself, I mean, it, sound, yeah, it sounds like it was a very quick process. That kind of surprises me, really, because I think sometimes these things can t- it can drag out for an extremely long period of mm. time. Mm. Um, so that's kind of great. Did, how, did, how did it kind of feel on the day you closed? What, what, what? I think we were absolutely exhausted, as I remember. You know, it was, it was all done to our, our accountants and our lawyers were in Bristol down here. And we decided we had to go for a celebratory lunch, but we were all so exhausted by the things. We'd all be up like three in the morning, sort of, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's. So we'd had enough by that point, I think. But, you know, but actually, you know, generally speaking, it was great. It was, you know, it worked, it worked really well. And what changed in your life after selling the business? <laughs> well, yeah. Um, well, I bought a helicopter, which is obviously, you know, <laughs> I'd always wanted to learn to fly. So I, I did that um, and enjoyed it enormously. But I think without being too sort of pretentious about it, I needed to do something um, because it was very odd not having to go to work. So I did that, but but I carried on working, and then, you know, I've, I've set up, or I'm running two businesses subsequently. So it felt great not to have to go to London every day, certainly. Yeah. Or, or, you know, I didn't... Or go. if you were going to London, you could just get in the chopper. <laughs> no, 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 unfortunately not, because it, it costs too much to land at Battersea Heliport. Um, so that doesn't really work. But um, <laughs> um, so, what are the business? What what are the two businesses that you're involved in now? So, so one of them relates back to Jacaranda days. Really, I guess it was probably in the late '80s, early '90s. We employed a guy as a runner and a tape op, and he's now in senior management at the BBC, having run BBC Four for a while, Cassian. And he and I kind of kept in touch over the years, and and had lots of lunches together, and. I kept telling him that he really ought to do something on the side to stop him going mad working in BBC management. And one of his contacts through commissioning is James May, who um, so he made a number of programmes with him for Channel 4 and BBC. And you know, cut a long story short, we've built a Learn to Pass Your Driving Theory Test app, now the highest rated driving theory test app in the App Store. And that's been enormous fun, learning a whole new business really and dealing with very young, very clever people to build an app business, which is great. And how much of your time is that taking up? Well, now less than it did, but um, probably a day a week, something like that. 
But we're actually in the process of talking to somebody who may be interested in acquiring that. So kind of going through the whole process again. Going for another exit. I like it. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, they, you know, that was always the intention. We were rather more structured about it this time around. Having learnt what I learnt from Jack Rander and doing it, as, as I said earlier, probably for rather too long, you know, the, the intention with this business was always to build it over the course of five years and sell it. And, in fact, we've only been running that business for about 18 months now, getting on for two years, and we've been approached, which is kind of nice it's obviously an entirely different way around you know um but we will be working with um uh, rockworth rockworth and, and and the same people again okay uh, and, and what's what's the other business uh well so, so the other <laughs> the other business through the connection with james is his gin business oh, okay. which is uh he bought a pub down here um sounds dangerous yeah 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 and um and he asked me to help him um get involved in that so yeah setting up international distribution of gin which is interesting is there anything you would have done differently looking back i think as i said earlier i think probably we should have sold it earlier right whether or not we would have made more money out of selling it earlier i don't know we you know we, we probably wouldn't have found the same buyer but i think we should have sold it at the peak when you know when we when we were Turning over before the recession, actually, but then you know who, who knew that it was a recession coming? Well, got one coming now. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we probably can predict it again now. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, there's always inevitably there's always a better time when you could have done it, but that's the benefit of hindsight. Yes. Yeah. Uh, great. I mean, I think that's that's basically cool. That's it. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to the Exit Plan podcast. This podcast was edited and mixed by Guy Hickson and was produced by me, Barnaby Cook. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review to help other people find us. If you're wondering what's next for you and your business and want to chat about an exit plan, connect with me on LinkedIn.